Greetings and thanks for uh, coming out. Um, the last time I spoke with Pepperdine was uh, 24 years ago. I, I don't want to know what happened in between then and now, but uh, glad to be back. Um, I'm from Walden, Vermont, which is uh, up in the northeast corner of the state. It's known as the Northeast Kingdom. Uh, a governor back at the turn of the century came up to those three counties and said, this is like a kingdom unto itself up here. And so that, that moniker has stuck to that area of Vermont. It's called the, the kingdom. We refer to it as the kingdom. Uh, it's not the kingdom, but it is a, a kingdom. In the mid-90s, um, after preaching for a decade, the ministry portion of my life seemed for all practical purposes to be over. I had a degree in Bible, I had preached for two congregations, and had worked in Christian higher education, but in, in 1994, ministry seemed to be over for me. And I asked myself, what have I done? Things had not worked out as planned, life did not play out for the script that I had in mind, why, why hadn't I majored in something that would have been useful to me, like business? I spent most of the next three years in the wilderness, or the desert, so to speak, asking myself the question that while I knew a lot, what did I know that I could make a living with? So I spent that time baking bread. I learned everything about baking bread, from milling hard red Montana wheat into flour, then mixing the ingredients together in the right order, to forming loaves into baguettes. I learned how to deal with finicky customers who seem to want a reason not to like your product. Who doesn't like warm bread? The sound of, you know, a crackling crust yielding that yeasty, warm center in the loaf and putting butter on that and tasting it in your mouth. Um, All right, I'm hungry. The aroma, <laughs> the aroma of fresh baked bread. I mean, doesn't that just make all of our mouths water? When was the last time you got a whiff of fresh baked bread? Nothing smells quite as good as warm bread from the oven. Jesus spoke these words, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never go thirsty. And people caught the aroma of the bread of life. After a few years of, of learning to work with quirky employees and handling even quirkier customers, I left the wilderness of bread baking, and I started in a temporary position in the human resources department of a large Midwestern bank. I had great word processing skills from years of typing sermons, and, and this bank needed a temporary to work uh, in, with an unpredictable staff attorney who wanted to write a manual for employees. And the result of that temporary position is that I have spent almost all of the last 20 years in banking. 
Along the way, I worked as an employee relations specialist, a corporate uh, family medical leave manager, HR process improvement analyst, an organizational development trainer, a leadership and ethics trainer, a senior employee relations consultant, an employee relations investigator, an HR line of business consultant for retail banking, and then now as the asset recovery manager of a small New England bank. And what I discovered about myself in, in each of those positions was that I had exactly the right education and experience to be a successful banker and also a minister. I made it my job, no matter what position I was in, no matter what I did, no matter what my title was, I made it my job to offer a helping hand, an understanding heart, and to demonstrate compassion for the people that I worked with. See, I've always had the heart of a minister. As long as I can remember, I've always learned that I might not be able to minister in the traditional way, but there were ways that I could. The Apostle Paul writes of a mystery that has been kept hidden for the ages and generations, but is now disclosed. He says that this truth unlocks our world, and for the Apostle Paul, the key is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ's life relived in people, ordinary people like you and I. Paul says it, it, it doesn't come from fine-sounding arguments, from words. It doesn't come from complicated systems of doctrine or convoluted codes of conduct. It comes not down to words. It comes down to Christ in you. Christ formed in each of us. It comes down to his person, his story, relived in your life and in my life. It's, in my life, it's me struggling with, but reaching out to the most difficult person that I work with and forgiving them and loving them and recognizing our common humanity. That we dream many of the same dreams, this person and I, that we uh, hurt in many of the same ways, that we struggle with so many of the same things. Living with Christ in you requires you to be competent in your chosen field, ethical in your dealings with everyone, and living a joyful life. Then you can be salt and yeast and light. If you fail to be competent, if you fail to be ethical or joyful, then your witness will be empty words. My experience is that people are always watching mm -hmm. us. And because they're always watching us, um, they um, will hold our words suspect until they see a difference in our lives. Until they see 
something unusual about us. They want to see our words fleshed out, right? They wait and they watch to see if we will walk our talk. And they're waiting for us to live what we say we believe. If, if you profess Christ, but you frequently lose your temper with your employees, if you profess Christ but berate people when they make a mistake, if you profess Christ and fail to demonstrate compassion in difficult circumstances, well, then your walk and your talk are incongruent. We nod agreement with Paul's words about having our hearts set on things of God rather than things of this world, and we say that we love our neighbors as ourselves, and that we embrace the golden rule. But our coworkers wait for us to be different. Our employees wait for us to be less neurotic, less materialistic, and less inwardly focused. Our managers look for us to be more compassionate, more self-controlled, and more joyful. And our boss looks to us to be more competent, more patient, while showing integrity and demonstrating strength. None of these people want more words. They, they, they don't want to hear us talking about those things. They want to see that in our lives. They don't want an awkward conversation about God in the boardroom or the break room or even the bathroom. They want to see God in our lives. Sir? Yeah. Did you say words or work? Words. They don't want more words. W-O-R-D-S? W-O-R-D-S. Okay, thank you. Guess what they want? They want to smell yes. fresh baked bread. Mm. They want to smell the bread of life. Do you know why? You know what drew people into my bakery when I was a baker? It was the aroma of fresh baked bread. When I managed the bread store, as soon as the bread came out of the oven, I would go and prop open the front door. <laughs> why did I do that? Calling card. Yeah, I wanted people to smell the bread. Because the smell does what? It entices you to taste. The aroma makes people hungry. And just a whiff of it entices them to eat. Uh, do you know what this generation needs? It needs the aroma of Christ. And it doesn't get that from our words. Now, I could have just taped a, a recipe to the store window, right? You know, this is the recipe for the bread. But instead, I gave out samples. I would cut slices of bread and put a big bowl of soft butter on the counter, and people would lather that bread up. And guess what they did? They went out with not just a loaf of bread, but a couple of loaves of bread. They were enticed. Very often, the religious folks, instead of giving out samples of bread, will give out recipes. 
recipes. Mm. We have all kinds of recipes, don't we? Mm. All kinds of words in tracts and booklets and pamphlets and, you know, we have all kinds of recipes for what it means to be like Jesus. They caught the aroma. My friend actually took this picture. I thought that was a great one. That, that one in the front, you know, with her tongue hanging out. <laughs> she wants some bread. We love to give out recipes. And have we somehow surrendered to the view that, that words can pass for authentic Christian faith? So long as we say those words with pious faces, so long as we bow our heads before we eat our lunch in a public place, so long as we feel guilty for the fact that we don't take holiness seriously. Listen to the writer of the epistle of James. What's he say in the second chapter? Be quick to listen and slow to speak. We were just talking about this this morning. Yeah. What is James saying? People want to see that you care. They want to see that you believe in the person that you say you believe in. Up front, they don't want to hear what you have to say. They want to see it. For some reason, our first inclination, and it might be because of our heritage, is almost always to begin with our words rather than our lives. And so our words are ineffective because they're not authentically rooted in our lives. Tell me, generally, when do you ask for a recipe? Before you've tasted something or after you've tasted something really good? Yeah. After you've eaten that piece of lemon meringue pie that the crust was perfect, and the meringue was that high. And it was the best lemon meringue pie you've ever had. And you asked that person who baked it. My wife makes a really good lemon meringue pie. <laughs> Can I have your recipe? It's after we've tasted something, after we've experienced it, that we want the words. The people that we work for, with and for, I should say, don't want a recipe until they've smelled and tasted the authentic aroma of Christ in my life and in yours. The fresh aroma of the bread of life. St. Teresa was always saying it. Christ has no body now but, you can say it, yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ looks compassion into the world. Yours are the feet with which Christ walks to do good. Yours are the hands which Christ blesses the world. Yours, you are Christ. The second incarnation. You are Christ. Christ being lived out in your life and in mine. We are Christ embodied. So how does that get fleshed out? 
How does that get incarnated in my life and in yours? Three thoughts that I think can help us. First is we need to engender trust. We need to demonstrate accountability, and we need to show respect in the workplace. First, engender trust. A good friend of mine many years ago said, people will trust us as we show ourselves trustworthy. Right? And trust is created when people find us both competent and vulnerable. I love this picture of Superman because he is the epitome of what? Strength. Competence, mm -hmm. strength. But in this picture, he's lying on a vinyl couch. So he's what? He's a little vulnerable there. Competence and vulnerability. Our competence comes from knowledge, experience, and results. There is no substitute for having real knowledge about something and thoroughly knowing what you're talking about. PowerPoint presentations are no substitute for genuine understanding. Having real experience gives us hands-on knowledge to draw from and the ability to think on our feet, to be able to anticipate landmines uh, and difficulties based on previous experience, things that we've done before. And it goes a long way to establishing competency. And finally, results. In our, my workaday world in banking, results and data are king. Being able to quantify results, being able to effectively deliver on time and within budget is the proof of the pudding. And for Christians, underlying this is the fact that our competency ultimately comes from whom? competency comes from God. But remember when I said that, that competency, uh, that, that um, trust is created when people find us competent and vulnerable in the workplace. This is often the missing piece, is the humanity, the vulnerability. Because when you're a manager or you're a vice president or you're the president of the bank, you want people to see you as what? Strong, invulnerable, what? Infallible. Oh, and infallible, yeah. We're the, we're the people that know it all, right? We've got, we've got all the right answers. The key to, invulnerability is essential to building trust. People need to see that you're both human, just like them, and as well as trustworthy. And the key is to strike a balance between confidence and warmth, I'm convinced. So that you're credible, but you're also human. I tell folks when they first join my team that I will always have their back. And if they make an honest mistake, then I totally get it because I have made a truckload of honest mistakes. And the first time a new employee on my team hears me say, I will always have your back. In their mind, they say to themselves, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I've heard that before. Whatever. And then I give people the freedom to work and to make decisions and fail. And when they don't do well, I don't scold them. Particularly when they've just used their best judgment and it hasn't worked out. 
Things didn't go as planned. When I do that, I do in fact show that I have their back. Guess what happens? Trust. I engender trust with them. Because they, I've been a person who demonstrated what I said I was going to do. Because in that moment, my actions and my words are harmonized. They catch the aroma. No blame is assigned. You find the root cause and you agree not to do it that way again. And then you, you just move on. No scolding, nothing. And I've found that in low trust settings, where I've worked for managers, that low trust was the way that they operated. They were quick to focus on blame and not to focus on solutions. And in high trust environment, where people will focus on solutions and not try to place blame. The second is, is to demonstrate accountability. I love this cartoon. You've got a problem with avoiding personal accountability. Yeah, and whose fault is that? <laughs> If I want employees to trust me, then I have to trust them. And so if I make a mistake, and I do, and they bring that mistake to me, I eat that mistake just like it was my favorite bologna sandwich. I let them know that they were right, and that I made a mistake, and that I have to trust them. And I thank them for helping me be a more effective manager, and then I fire them. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I empower employees to take ownership and foster accountability because accountability has consequences and those consequences need to be consistently applied. And in my group, we have 12 months. I don't know if you guys, do you guys know what an asset recovery manager does at a bank? What does it sound like an asset recovery manager does? You heard it right, debt collection. And when I came to this bank uh, almost eight years ago, I said, I am not a hammer guy. If you're looking for a hammer guy, that is not who I am. And they said, you know, we're a small 10 branch community bank and we do not want a hammer guy. And I said, okay, I'm gonna work with people. And they said, that's fine, that's what we wanna do. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm really gonna work with people. And they said, yeah, that's what we want. And we've never had a disagreement, no matter how far I said we're going to work with people. They have let me do what I want. And they've let my team make decisions to do what I want. So we have 12-month goals, and we look at those goals every three months. And we are accountable to those goals, myself included. Any manager who's unwilling to get down and do the same work that his or her employees do, they are just not worth their salt. Occasionally, one member of my team will come into my office and they'll say, can we call this delinquent account together? Because, you know, maybe they are intimidated by the person that they're calling or perhaps they're, they just want to gain some confidence by listening to me, and so we'll call them together and I'll do most of the talking. Because mutual accountability works. 
my being accountable to them and them being accountable to me, there's a sense of personal responsibility because we're relying on others to give just as much effort. They're relying on me to give just as much effort as they give to me. The business advantages of, of mutual accountability are too many to count, but it's also the right thing to do. The third is show respect. Ask anyone what's the one characteristic that they want from their managers and coworkers, and respect will be someplace in the top five. They want to be respected for their work. A respectful workplace is one which each employee is treated fairly, regardless of experience, time with the company, gender, cultural background, sexual orientation. Um, a respectful workplace promotes healthy, personal working relationships between managers and employees and customers. And the major benefit of a respectful workplace is that it allows employees to function at their best. This gets fleshed out by, by um, treating people with courtesy and politeness and kindness, encouraging uh, co-workers to express opinions and ideas, listening to what others have to say before expressing your viewpoint. Remember what James said <laughs> about listening? Yeah. So let other people express their viewpoints, express their ideas. Use people's ideas to change and improve work and encourage the person with the idea to implement that themselves. <coughs> Never, ever use an employee's idea as your own. You want to wipe out everything that you have ever done to build trust, you just do that one time. That person does not keep that information to themselves. Mm. Treating everyone the same, no matter their race, religion, gender, size, age, or country of origin. Praising people much more frequently than you criticize, and never ever criticizing an employee in front of other employees. Ever. Encouraging praise and recognition from employee to employee. And the golden rule always applies to work. Treat others as you wish to be treated. Even more practically speaking, uh, we have weekly staff meetings, and I ask three questions. How are you doing? What's in your way? What can I help remove that's an obstacle and th that will keep you from doing what you want to do today or this week or what's coming up? And then what else do you need from me? What else do you want to tell me that isn't gossip? Because I don't want to hear any gossip. But what else do you need from me? By being vulnerable and letting employees be vulnerable in a safe and open environment, we create trust. And I understand that the team is going to hold me accountable to our values and that I will treat them with respect, accountability, and friendliness. The result is, is that um, throughout the more than 25 years that I've been tent making, I've been able to minister to all kinds of folks in all kinds of circumstances that I would not have otherwise had the opportunity to help. I've performed a dozen weddings in 25 years of, of employees or coworkers or even managers. Um, I've also preached a number of funerals for coworkers. I've christened babies for coworkers. I've provided counsel and support 
for many others in difficult times when they needed counsel and support. Um, I, I rescued a coworker from the very brink of ruining his life. In 1999, um, I'd only been with the bank for a couple of years, but of course I made some friends. And there were four of us that would go to lunch most days, and uh, then one night a week we would golf nine holes together. And the oldest of our group was a guy who was about 20 years older than I was at the time. Um, so he is really old now. <laughs> uh, he was the manager of HR Tech, Human Resources Technology, and, and he was a great guy. And one day at lunch, I noticed that he, was, he wasn't his usual jovial self. He was a very happy guy. And I asked if everything was okay, and, and he said that he was having some domestic problems at home. And he shared with me that he thought that his wife was having an affair with a gentleman at her office. He thought that their marriage of 10 years was done, that was breaking up. And, and I offered that I would be happy to listen to him any time that he needed somebody to talk to. A week or so went by, and one day he didn't show up for work. And a few days went by, and, and he still hadn't shown it up. And he called his manager, the HR VP, and said that he was going to need to be out for a couple of days. Another week went by, and he hadn't communicated with his manager at all. And at the end of that week, she was at her wit's end, because she couldn't reach him, and he hadn't called her. And he, she came to my desk, and she said, your friends with his name happen to be Jeff. You're friends with Jeff, right? And I said, yeah. She goes, do you have any idea what's going on with him? And I said, I don't know for sure, but I said, I can find out. Now, I didn't, I'd never been to his house. I didn't know where he lived, but I worked in HR, and guess what HR people have access to? <laughs> so I looked up his address, and I let Chris know that I was going to be heading south uh, for, to about, it was about an hour from where we lived that I was going to be heading south to check on our, my friend. And I drove down, found his neighborhood, even though I didn't have GPS at the time. And I pulled in his driveway, and I went up and I knocked on the door, and there was no answer. And I knocked again, and there was no answer. And I went back to my car, and as I was getting into my car, his wife pulled into the driveway behind me. And so I stepped out, and I said, do you happen to know where Jeff, your husband, is. And uh, she said, I think he's in the house. And I said, well, can, can I see him? And she goes, sure. And so she walked to the door and unlocked it, and we walked into the house, and we called out and didn't hear anything. And um, I went back through the house um, to their bedroom, and there was Jeff uh, laying across the bed. And there were three empty bottles of bourbon in the bedroom, and he was out cold. And I, I nudged him to get him aroused and finally got him so he would sit up on the side of the bed, took him into their bathroom and got him under the water, got him a shower. We went out and I fixed him a cup of coffee and I said, um, in the meantime, she's packing her bag. Mm. She's running around the house grabbing things and throwing it into a, a bag and then mm. she just leaves. 
I bundled him up. He's not going to be able to stay there by himself, right? There's just no way that this guy could be left alone in a house full of alcohol. And I take him home <laughs> and fix him a sandwich, put him to bed. And then I call our boss with his permission and said, uh, I've got Jeff. He's okay, but he's not going to be able to come back to work immediately. She says, as long as I know he's okay. That's fine. The next day, uh, there's a local hospital near us that had a pro program where you could dry out. It was a two-week program. And you go in, you go to meetings, you get dried out, and then they figure out how you're going to make it from that point out. And I said, Jeff, you have to go into this program. And he, he agreed. And so the very next day, I took him to the hospital and checked him in. And then I came back two weeks later and picked him up, brought him back to our house. He was very much with it, coherent, he said, I can't go home. And I said, well, where, where do you want to go? And he said, well, my, you know, his parents lived uh, two and a half hours south. And they were in their 70s. And I said, um, all right, you call me when you get there. So we went back to his house, we got his clothes, and then I sent him on his way. He came back to where we lived, uh, back from two and a half hours away, a year later. He didn't come back that entire time. He came back a year later to finalize his divorce and to pack up his belongings. And we went out to dinner that night after he came back. And he asked me, he said, thank you for saving my life, but why? Why did you go out of your way to drive all the way down to Medina and check on me that night? Nobody else did. Why did you do it? And the only answer I had was, Jesus compelled me. Yes. I didn't want to drive to Medina that night. I didn't know what I was going to find. But Jesus compelled me. This gentleman, by the way, has gone on to a successful career. He's been sober for 19 years. And he teaches Sunday school. <laughs> because Jesus compelled someone else to help him. These opportunities to minister to people came as a result of the grace of God. And even though I thought 24 years earlier that my ministry was over, God used both my education and my circumstances to help and to heal other people, and has all along. Anybody go to Broadway? Anybody seen this show? Yeah. Uh, who, who's the actor that did it for so long? Um, uh, yeah, and then after after that it was uh, Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane, yeah, exactly. Um, you're familiar with how to succeed in business without really trying. It's the story that begins with a guy named J. Pierpoint Finch, a distant relative, <laughs> obviously, a temporary window washer who is devouring a how-to book 
in order to transform himself into a business mogul. I mean, he's out there on the ledge, literally reading while he's washing windows. And he wants to be this business mogul one day. And he bluffs his way in from window washing to the mail room, and it's at the Worldwide Wicket Company. And Finch climbs the company ladder, impressing his bosses over time. Would you like to know how to really succeed in business? Be salt, yeast, and light mm. to people. Salt representing being competent, worth your salt, having knowledge and experience needed to season the team, pitching in wherever is needed. People trust you not only because you're competent, but also because you're vulnerable. You get results and know that it's not all about you. Yeast representing serving as a leavening agent to help people rise, modeling accountability, having integrity, being patient enough to experience the proof that comes with good results, expecting the best from others and not blaming when mistakes are made, encouraging people to express themselves and praising people when they try new things, and then light, bringing joy, bringing compassion, courtesy, respect, kindness, in all that you do, this is so hard for me, remaining calm. I struggle with remaining calm and peaceful. Shining a light on the good in others. Being a blessing to other people. Salt, yeast, and light. That's, that's what's worked for me as I have made my way in this world. What I discovered about myself over the years is that I had both the right education and the skills to do something immensely satisfying and useful. But on the other hand, what I've discovered is, is that it's people, it is relationships that are the most important thing. You cannot get that wrong. With Jesus, people always come first. And, and we fail, if we fail to see that it comes down to how we treat people, then we fail at the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Join me in St. Patrick's Prayer. Christ be with me, Christ is in me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in the hearts of all that love me, Christ in the mouth of friend and stranger. And then I would ask this. Christ in me, yeah. the hope of the Lord. Yeah. So, Studs Terkel wrote a book um, back in 1974. Working people talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. It is a great book. In, in summation, he writes, 
Work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than torpor. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. He interviewed hundreds of people and asked them those questions. What, what is important to you about your work? And he interviewed you know, the whole spectrum, from the guy that swept the halls to the guy who was the executive. All the blue-collar folks, all the white-collar folks in between. Do you think that this is still true? Over the last 25 years, we've seen an ever-increasing interest in what is called employee engagement. Where work is not just an eight-to-five job that we somehow you know, trudge through five days a week until we can finally, you know, get to the weekend. As a matter of fact, do you remember the old uh, beer advertisement? If you could just take a little bit of your weekend and do what with it? Put it into your week. Yeah. That where work provides opportunities for meaningful service to others and even joy. Extensive research has shown that, that when people have some measure of fulfillment either through or in their work, guess what? They're better people. They're better employees. Most people have a, a fundamental need for a sense of purpose and mission and, and so that work is not just a paycheck, but it is um, place where people can contribute. And that's exactly what Turkel is saying. People want to find some sort of fulfillment. And we're not just talking about millennials here. Everybody wants to feel like that the job that they're doing has some kind of meaning, right? Nobody wants to be the guy at the widget factory that stands there all day and just stamps out. Um, you know what's on the New Hampshire license plate at the bottom, you know, the little slogan? Can you imagine people in prison stamping those plates out? Live for your die. Live for your die. Live for your die. Live for your die. All day long. No. People want to find meaning. They want to find uh, purpose in, in what they're doing in their work as well. Now, to be honest with you, this need was met where in the past? By churches. Yeah. But churches now reach far fewer people than they have ever reached before. Why is that? Why don't people see us as a relevant place to find? And this is a rhetorical question. If you want to answer, you can. But why is it that, that people have a hard time finding mission and purpose? Talking about people in the church? Yeah. And look for mission and purpose someplace else. Maybe because we've lost our connection with Christ. Exactly. We don't get our people fired up about mm -hmm. 
being Jesus to other people. We want them to know all the right answers to all the questions that people may ask, and that goes back to what? Words. As long as they know the words to say. We love that passage of scripture. Billy, it's always be prepared to give a that's answer. We, boy, I tell you what, we paper the walls with that one, don't we? My grandparents loved that passage of scripture. And that, you know, that filters down. Whether we want to say that that is a big influence, our, our past is a big influence on us, it's true. We are the people with the answers. Wouldn't it be great to be known that we are the people with Jesus? So the need for a sense of purpose is, is sort of left uh, on the doorstep for somebody else to pick up. Uh, businesses have, become, have begun to reflect and to say in a very different language, by the way, that our people want more meaning, and so how do we invite that in? How do we nourish that? How do we give people a sense of meaning and purpose? And so companies have begun to engage people, and, and they know that they need to address this in their employees, their, their need for meaning and purpose, and so consequently more companies are offering uh, their employees challenges to deal with hunger, with housing, with injustice, and with poverty. I'll give you an example. We live in Vermont. We live in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. In this whole state of Vermont alone, um, minorities make up 1% of the entire state. We are as white as white as you can possibly get. Martin Luther King Day doesn't have a lot of meaning for folks in Vermont, only because we're a white, white, white state. We had to figure out a way for our employees at this small bank, about 140 employees, we had to figure out a way for them to feel like they could have meaning and purpose. And so what we said was is that on Martin Luther King Day, we will give you a personal today to use any time throughout the year if on Martin Luther King Day you will spend six hours helping us in some way, in some capacity, feeding the hunger in the kingdom, in our corner of the state. Every employee signed up. So that morning of Martin Luther King Day, we had employees making blizzard bags. You probably don't know what a blizzard bag is, do you? In Vermont, we know what a blizzard bag is. So the Meals on Wheels folks, the seniors that get Meals on Wheels, we actually have days where cars can't get out, even in Vermont. And so the Meals on Wheels folks can't deliver meals that day. So what they asked us to do was to pack blizzard bags. And so they had all the, the dried foods, the crackers, the pudding cups. They had everything around the room. And the bags were in the middle. And we just went around the room and filled bag after bag after bag after bag. They needed 1,000 bags. And then they would deliver them to the senior when they delivered a regular meal. And they would say, on the day that we can't deliver, this is your meal that day. Or these are the three meals. They actually contained, each bag contained three meals. And so we had 60 employees just packing blizzard bags that morning. Uh, 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 several others went to the hospital. The hospital had a community garden. And they needed some people to help them lay out and design this spring's community garden. And so they did that. Some other folks went to two different food uh, meal programs in two different churches and they helped serve that day for the homeless that come in and rely on those meals in order to do that. We had the entire company out for six hours on Martin Luther King Day and guess 
what the feedback was that we got the next day. I didn't realize that there were people that weren't getting fed. They talked about individuals that they met in the food line and how the sense of warmth, the sense of uh, caring, the sense of purpose that they felt that day, helping people. It doesn't get any more Jesus than that. Novo Nordisk, you familiar with the drug company? Anybody here take drugs? <laughs> no, Novo Nordisk, the pharmaceutical company, provides employees with a whopping 80 hours a year paid time off, 10 paid days a year for in community engagement. You get to pick what community service thing you want to be involved with, and they give you, that's baked into their, hey, get it? That's baked into their program. It's one of the employee benefits. They tell you that when they're hiring you. You're going to get, besides your vacation, you're going to get 10 days to work with whatever charity you want to work with. Deloitte, the global management consulting firm, gives employees 48 hours of paid time to volunteer and enrich their communities. Well, I mean, you know, it works, right? People are going to use that time because it's time off, and they're going to be involved in their communities, and not only do they get the feeling of purpose and the feeling of enrichment, but the, the company gets what? PR. Yeah, look at all these great employees that are out here working in our community. And that is, that's just two of, of 60 or 70 of the top companies in the country that give employees time, paid time, to work in their community. I wish we could convince people to do that. And why do they do this? Because um, people who believe that their employers are making a difference are more apt to be engaged employees. They're happy to work for this company. They may not like their job every day, but boy, they like the company that they work for. Engaged employees are more attentive and vigilant. They look out for the needs of their coworkers and the overall enterprise because they personally own the results of their work and of that organization. It's, uh, and you know, I see it and I think, Jesus. I mean, literally, it's Jesus. I want to thank you for your time and attention. I hope that I've given you some things to yes. think about. Yeah. And, uh, uh, if anybody wants a copy of the slides, I'd be happy to, to give them to you. Um, just uh, give me your email address and I'll, I'll email them to you. Thank you. Thank you.